As you turn to 1 Peter, consider with me perhaps the strongest and most startling rebuke in all of our Bible. We find it in the Gospels. And there in the Gospels, we see Jesus fulfilling his earthly ministry. He's traveling about, he's healing, he's teaching. His disciples are with him. And they have all kinds of questions. And they're observing his ministry and they're hearing him teach. And along the way, Jesus begins to tell them that he will have to suffer many things. Well, one of his disciples, Peter, the human author of our text here in 1 Peter 4, he pulls him aside and decides to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus responds. We pick this up in Matthew 16 where the Bible says, From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes to be killed and be raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. On this occasion, we have this startling rebuke to Peter because exactly what Jesus said. His mind was focused on human desire and not fulfilling God's will. So Jesus makes it abundantly clear to him, I am not here to do the will of people. I'm not here for my comfort and my convenience. I'm here to accomplish the will of the Father. His life was not his own, and he would follow God. He would follow God even if it took him to a place of excruciating pain and death itself. So let's go to 1 Peter 4, where the Bible says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, They might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the everlasting word of God to us, his people. 1 Peter is so abundantly helpful to us and important to us today as God's people because it calls us to count the cost. It calls us to choose suffering rather than silence 
rather than sin. And we learned last week in chapter 13 that Jesus Christ suffered unjustly to the point of death as he willingly, willingly submitted to God. No one takes his life from him. He willingly lays it down, the Bible tells us. Jesus was perfect, completely sinless. He didn't deserve what he received from humanity. And that's what we're to learn. That's what Peter's pointing us to. Jesus suffered during his time on earth, though he's completely righteous. He willingly suffers to follow God's plan, to obey the Father's will, even if it means pain, even if it means horror, even if it means death. So, all followers of Jesus then must adopt this same way of thinking. Take his mindset about life and living and make it your own in order to do the will of God. For those who choose to think like Jesus, to do God's will, you will experience freedom from sin. You will experience freedom from sin. For believers, the only way to live godly in a world so sick with sin, so lost in darkness, is to have the same way of thinking as Jesus. We have to make the same choice every day that Jesus made. We have to choose to give in to temptation or to say no to temptation. We choose to take the path of least resistance and greatest ease, to follow cultural norms and adopt our culture's values, or to follow God's word, even when that puts us in direct opposition with what our world values and thinks is true. Peter here calls believers to choose obedience to God, even though it will mean that we will suffer. We'll be criticized. We'll be ostracized. We'll be demeaned because of it. And we experience the suffering because of our obedience to God. It's the demonstration that our life is lived no longer for self, no longer for sin, but it shows that our allegiance now is to God and to his truth. Just as Peter says here, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, now Peter is not teaching sinless perfection. Let's be really clear here. No one is perfect. If you are concerned that you may have reached perfection, uh, please come talk to us and we will help you out with that, all right? Um, I'm sure some of your family can help assist you uh, in that delusion as well. So he's not teaching sinless perfection because it wouldn't make sense then in a few verses to say, don't go back to the sin that you were in before you came to Christ. As believers, we're not shaped by our sins anymore, but we're shaped by God's design for us as new creatures in Christ. We have died to sin, and we have freedom to live for God. So when you choose to live for God, you think more like Jesus. Your desires for sin and ungodliness are less and less. Sin becomes a burden to you. It vexes you. It grieves you. It causes you sorrow. It's not that pleasure. It's not that enjoyment that it maybe seemed like before you came to Christ. So when you continue to serve God, 
despite suffering, you demonstrate you've made a break with sin. Catch what Peter's saying here. Verse 1, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So here's what's happening. If you adopt the mind of Jesus Christ and you follow God's will, even though it costs you something, you have now chosen sides. You have chosen to suffer and not to sin. Your allegiance is no longer to sin and the flesh and ungodly living. It's now to Jesus Christ, his word and his ways. Now, that doesn't mean we don't struggle yet with our sins. And we certainly are burdened by them. But you see the world differently from those who don't believe the gospel. You prize God and his will. You choose to serve him. You choose to live differently. You know what this is like. Those, those awkward conversations where it reveals to people that you're with who don't, haven't, or who haven't accepted the gospel, it reveals to them that the way you see the world is so different. You might have even had those moments where somebody asks you a question, maybe an unbeliever at work, and you're thinking, oh, here we go. They're going to find out that the way I live my life is very, very different from how they've told me they live their life. And the reason for that is because Jesus Christ has changed you. So you've counted the cost and you've chosen to suffer for righteousness and godliness so you're not choosing sin. Sin is defeated through your willingness to suffer in order to follow Christ. So we put on the mind of Christ. We serve God regardless of suffering we may endure. And verse 3, Peter calls us to come back to something that must be basic for every believer. Something you and I as committed Christians think about. And that is choosing to say no to sin. We have to choose to say no to sin. Verse 3, it's like Peter says, enough. Enough. You've participated in these things long enough. These are the things that put Jesus on the cross. They torture your soul. It's fascinating to me to talk with people who engage in sin and encourage others to do so. And then they admit how regrettable all of it is. Remember when I was in graduate school uh, working to pay for my educational habit, I had to work a few different jobs, and on one of those jobs, I had coworkers who would often encourage me to the kind of behavior that Peter prohibits here. And they would, I don't always understand why this was, they thought this was a good idea, but they pull out pictures on their phone of the aftermath. And I would say, why, why would this in any way support what you're asking me to do? That looks miserable. And they would admit, it is miserable. That's Peter's point. Why would you go back to this misery? It traps you. It ensnares you. It put Jesus on the cross. Yes, we can talk about it in glowing terms, but just because we can market something well doesn't make it good. How many products have you bought because the marketing was great and you were frustrated you spent the cash on something that's junk, right? 
And just because we can talk well about something doesn't mean it's okay. And that's what Peter is saying here. He's saying enough of living the lifestyle and the choices that characterized you before coming to Christ. Whether you sinned a lot or sinned a little. You don't ever come to a point of saying as a, as a committed believer, I need just a little bit more sin. I don't know of any believer who on their deathbed said, I, I just wish I'd, had, I'd spent less time reading God's word, being with God's people, and knowing God and more time sinning. In fact, you hear the opposite, don't you? I wish I would have never participated in those things. I wish I would have never said those things. I wish those relationships I hadn't allowed to tear me down, but I had used them for good and for God's purpose. We all wish we sinned a whole lot less. We beg God to rescue us from our sin. You've maybe pled with God over these last seven days to help you guard your tongue from evil. To help you overcome your anger which is destroying you. And you know it. We relish, we treasure our new life in Christ. It is abundant and it's free. It's free from sin. It's free to serve God. We can't get over that. The glorious, wondrous work of Jesus to make that possible. So we choose not to return to a life of ungodliness and sin. And the list here is quite awful, isn't it? This list includes sexual immorality, desires that must be restrained. You know what this is like when you don't restrain your desires? It's like James says, it all starts in your mind. And you let that desire for sin fester, and eventually your desires grow stronger. And if you're not careful and restrain it, you will choose sin over righteousness. The list continues with being drunk, wild parties full of substance and sexual perversion. Lawless idolatry here is an interesting designation. It's idolatry that is so unrestrained, so egregious, that goes so far that even our civil government prohibits that kind of activity. Even unbelievers recognize this isn't good. Now, doesn't it appear that not much has changed from when Peter wrote this to how our society is today? You read this list and you think, well, that, that sounds like he wrote that, well, yesterday, right? I mean, how many of our culture's youth have died at out-of-control drinking parties? How many of our culture's youth have been assaulted at fraternity ragers? You don't have to look far in the news each week to find it. How many young people have died from the astonishing consumption of drugs at wild parties and habits that start there that continue into adulthood and destroy? This isn't just a young person's sin. These habits start and they begin to take root in our heart. 
and you might get better at hiding them. But Peter says, don't go back. Enough. Enough. Put your mind again on the cross. The time for your sin is past. Don't live in it any longer. Are you having difficulty changing? Are you struggling, wrestling with your temptations and you wonder where is victory? This passage points us right back to where we must go. We start at the beginning. We start at the cross. It's where it all begins for us who are believers. Christ's death atones for our sin, changing us from sinfulness to sinlessness. And you've probably observed this if, if you've been working in, diligently in your relationship with the Lord and you've been submitting to His working in your heart and, and you're diligently studying the Word, you, you probably could look back over the past few years and see, yes, God is changing me. Those sins that had taken root and were rooted so deeply, they don't have such a stronghold over me anymore. I love hearing the testimonies of believers who've been faithful to God over many years and hearing how God has done this great work of grace in their hearts to wean them from sin, killing the desire, helping them to choose not to say yes to those temptations. So Peter says, start again at the cross. Don't go back. Enough is enough. Adopt the thinking of Jesus that's willing to obey God even to the point of suffering. But be ready. Be ready to be mistreated when living for Christ. He doesn't want us surprised by this. He doesn't want us caught off guard or, or put on our back foot. He wants you to know when you live for Jesus, just, just like Jesus suffered, Though he was sinless and perfect, he suffered because he was God and they hated him, right? And, and so he says, you be ready because you're going to experience the same thing. You see that in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, as a believer... Don't be surprised when you're mistreated. They're not going to understand your unwillingness to not participate in their sinful choices. One author describes how strange this appears to an unbeliever when he writes, a Christian professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. He became to us a reproof of our thoughts. The very sign of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of others and his ways are strange. You can expect to have people speak about you in a critical, negative way. They will attack, slander, and demean you. I was uh, talking with a student who attends a private school here locally and just a few weeks ago, we were having a conversation, and, and the student just confided in me, it's difficult going to a private school, even one that's a Christian school, because you're thought weird if you talk about God. If you share what God is teaching you as you go to his word every day, you're considered kind of kooky, right? It's abnormal behavior. 
And, and we have students who attend non-private schools. And you know what this is like because you've been pushed on this issue of, now don't Christians believe that marriage is between one man and one woman in a lifelong committed relationship? We support gospel partners who, right here in our own country, they are suffering because of their stand for Jesus Christ. Don't you believe that God is the only way to salvation through Jesus Christ? You believe in a real Jesus who was put on a real cross and tortured and suffered? Well, that's crazy. And as believers... We can expect for that to only increase. Family and friends may condemn you for not participating with them. They may mock and make fun of you for not choosing to live how they do or spend your money the way that they do. They may taunt and even verbally torture you. They're going to talk behind your back. You might be passed over for a promotion. Because they, they're not sure. They want somebody who believes the way you do about Jesus and his truth in this position. You may not be welcomed at the playground. You may not be asked to attend the company party. The people of the world will reject, despise, demean, and even kill believers. We have gospel partners right now that we don't say a lot about publicly because to do so would put them in great harm in the country where they're serving today holding services because their governments come after them because they believe this Bible, they believe Jesus Christ is the only way and the only way to eternal life is through him. Now, here in America, we're just called crazy for those kind of beliefs. We're hauled into our schools to be asked, are you one of those crazy Christians? Why can't your child complete this project? Why won't you participate with the, with the other families in, in, in the school who are doing these kinds of things, who believe this way? Don't you guys realize you're out there a little bit? Why don't you come? Everybody's doing it. So... We could be tempted to respond with frustration, with anger. We could lash out. But Peter tells us, don't respond that way. Verse 5. They will be held accountable, so trust God. Trust God to be the judge. God is the righteous, impartial judge. He is not accountable to any party ideology. He is the lover of truth. He is the lover of justice and righteousness. He sees the suffering and he knows those who cause it. The fact that God is ready, the word ready is right here in our text. It means the judgment could come at any time without warning. This is a call to those who would torture and cause Christians to suffer to realize they will be held accountable. There is hope to turn to Jesus. Just think about this with me. One of the greatest tormentors of the early church of Jesus Christ was the apostle Paul. And so think about this with me. If you were living in this time, I wonder what our prayers for Saul would be like. 
maybe prayers we wouldn't want to share publicly because he was the one pulling people out of their homes and torturing them to the point where they were blaspheming the name of Jesus. That's torture. And what does God do? God takes Saul and he radically changes his heart to where we read our New Testament and we see Jesus, we see truth from the hand of the human author, Paul, who God radically altered for his glory and namesake. So those persecutors will be judged by the righteous, impartial, justice-loving God for they're causing his children to suffer. And that's Peter's point here. God is not unaware. God is not asleep as you suffer torment, as you suffer pain because of your faithfulness to love and to follow and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. He is the all-remembering God. He is the all-knowing all-powerful God. You cannot escape him. You cannot hide from him. It was David who said, where can I go from the presence of the Lord? I can't go to the deepest part of the sea. And if you study the deepest part of the sea, it's deep out there. I can't go to the highest heaven. And if you've studied outer space, it's deep out there too. And David says, I can't escape the presence of the Lord there isn't, there isn't any hiding place. The eyes of the Lord see, so we give ourselves and the suffering we receive to God. People may forget the demeaning words, the intentional harm they cause us because of our commitment, our faithfulness to know, to love, and to proclaim Jesus. But God stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Even death, even death cannot cause you to escape God's judgment. Now the contrast of believers being mistreated and God holding those who mistreat them accountable leads Peter to give his readers comfort in verse 6. He answers here the concern of what happened to fellow believers who when they were alive they heard the gospel and believed. Now, here's, here's likely the situation we're looking at. In Peter's time, his original audience, they're suffering physically for their relationship with Christ. They're being put in prison. Uh, they're being tortured. They're suffering relationally, right? People around town stay away from those crazy Christians, right? And then you have others who they're being refused jobs. They don't have employment. They can't pay their bills because they don't have jobs because people know they're Christians. We're not going to hire those crazies, right? And so here you have them wondering because now they're being taunted by those who rejected the gospel and they're saying something to the effect of, look, you, you guys are missing out on a lot of fun parties. Look at all this fun sin we're participating in and you're missing out. Plus, you're still dying like we are. This judgment in the flesh as humans are judged that they're talking about in verse 6, this is death. Death was viewed as a shame. Death was viewed as punishment. 
And so they're saying, see, you're punished too, even though you're following God and you believe this gospel and you say it brings you satisfaction and joy, but you're still dying. And here's Peter's response. Yes, just like Hebrews tells us, it's appointed to everyone to die and after this, the judgment. But the end of verse six tells us they're alive. They're alive in the spirit with God. So this gospel wasn't preached in vain. They believed and they're with God. For the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us is what Paul tells us in Romans 8. So as you face another week, follow him. Think like Jesus to do God's will. Be done with sin. Embrace obedience to God regardless of the consequences in this life. For many of us, we don't experience the kind of suffering that our brothers and sisters across this world are experiencing physically and financially and relationally today. But we do experience suffering in other ways. Some of you know what it means to be passed over for a job because of your Christian faith. Some of you know what it means to be shunned by your family because of your Christian faith. And they get together and they don't invite you. And you know because they told you. We don't want you there because of what you believe. You're kind of a drag on our party. Because you make us feel guilty. And they falsely accuse you. And they put you down. Some of you know what this is like because when you go to school, there are certain people who refuse to be friends with you because they know what you believe about Jesus Christ and his gospel. They know what you hold to be true from your worldview because you've been shaped by the Bible. So as you face that kind of suffering, the call to us as God's people is, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, so while you remain on this earth, no longer for human passions, but you live for the will of God. Let's ask his help to do this. Our God and Father, we thank you for this wonderful word to us. It is a hard word. We confess we don't want to suffer. We don't like it. It hurts. It's uncomfortable. It causes pain. But Father, we want to be faithful to you. We love you because you first loved us and you demonstrated that love to us through giving us Jesus. So we beg you to help us to put on the mind of Christ, to think the same way Christ thought, to give ourselves gladly to doing your will, even if it requires suffering. Save us 
from thinking we can be Christians without it costing us something. And help us to walk diligently, eagerly with the Savior who bought us with his blood. To him alone be glory here in his church body, both now and forevermore. Amen.